everybody. This is, uh, I think, uh, I'm calling it season one, episode two of the AFFI podcast. Uh, and I'm here with Luke Howison, the vice president of the Associated Firefighters of Illinois, an all-around extraordinaire. And we are here at Fire and Iron Media again, which has been an incredible experience. And for those of you who listened to the first podcast, uh, made us sound a, a lot better and a lot more intelligent than we really are. And we really appreciate that. And you should go where all podcasts are available and check out all of the fire and iron media stuff. I think Chicago's bravest uh, is, is I think the flagship one, which is absolutely fantastic. And please do so. Uh, Luke, I think we had a pretty good response for the season one, episode one. Is that correct? Yeah, we had an overwhelming response from our members. Uh, got a lot of compliments on how well the episode was. Now a lot of people know a different name for me as Little Timmy. <laughs> so yes. we're, we're, we're good there. Yeah, uh, t- thanks to Chuck Sullivan, your true Luke slash Timothy is now what you'll be known as for the, the remainder of your AFFI career. Good for you. And th- that's most of the compliments I got. It was just on that part and how I just sat there and took it. But that's what good <laughs> firemen do. You don't, you don't let them know you're getting to you. Yes. You, yeah. uh, you take... You take the shit. Your new name is Little Timmy. Now go clean the bathrooms. There you go. Life, life, life is good. But yeah, it, I think it was a, it was a great. Me too. I mean, in all honesty, I had heard from just a, locals and members all throughout the state that uh, they really liked it and unilaterally heard back. So we, um, based on that, we're gonna do more of these and and bring you a, a bunch of different topics and ideas. And I think Luke. So and and if anybody has suggestions for topics in the future. Um, they can always contact you and, and email you or Facebook or any of the inner Google Web Al Gore super Facebook machine contact ability that people have to get a hold of you with different ideas and, and go from there, right? Yeah, yeah. Get a hold of me. I've gotten some feedback so far, uh, and we're trying to bring different guests on every time. And, you know, we want to reach our members and, you know, through the varied platforms that we have. And this is obviously a hit, and we'll continue to do so, so... Yeah, let me know if there's something people want to hear out there, and we're happy to do it for them. Yes. So, and and again, in conjunction with um with the fire and iron, it's just an awesome facility and makes us look good. So, speaking of uh, of different topics, uh, for episode two, I love to make ourselves look actually <laughs> professional here. For episode two, um, because I'm going with it, I'm going with the professional. The screw it. Okay. We are uh, really, really honored to have an incredible um, uh, guest on here, and it's it's a topic that is very important to Luke slash Timothy and myself, just in our professional lives and, and just personal lives is, is, is a favorite topic. But we have uh, Robert Bruno with us, and he, for all of you listening out there in Radio Land, is the professor and director of the Labor Education Program at uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He, he is he's just a, a – um, well, actually at UIC – I'm sorry, Professor Bruno. It's, it's UIC, but it's through University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Is that correct? How did I how did I just screw that up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, about as thoroughly as, as you can. But uh, uh, in fact, most people do screw it up. So uh, don't feel badly, uh, Jerry. Uh, the the program is housed in Urbana-Champaign. You got that exactly right. But you're also correct that I direct the program, and I have my primary office at uh, in Chicago. Uh, and we're right off the UIC campus. So it's perfectly fine to refer to me uh, as a UIC uh, campus faculty. Fantastic. I, in, in, I, I had a um, just kind of a little, little point of personal privilege here, but 
Um, Professor Bruno, many, many years ago, my law firm was not as explosive as it is now. Uh, I had uh, dabbled with the idea of going back for my doctoral degree in history, and, and I was actually accepted into the UIC program. And Professor Bruno, you may or may not remember this, but, but probably 10 years ago, I had uh, made an appointment to come to see you and talk about the history program and, and eventually was accepted. And I probably am still deferring every semester for the last decade because I just can't find the time to do it. But a life goal of mine is a PhD in history. And you were just in all honesty, you were wonderful to take the time uh, to sit with me for a long time that you may not remember um, and talk all about your experiences and, and what, what it would mean um, to do academic research in that area. It was, it was a wonderful experience. So thank you. Well, uh, then let me uh, take a, a point of privilege uh, to also note for uh, all of your listeners that uh, you are a, a recent uh, author of a really very good academic paper that addressed public pensions uh, here in Illinois, and, and I think told a pretty compelling story, and you had the work published uh, in the Kent College Journal, the Illinois Public Employees Report, in which I am a a co-editor, and it's a, it's a great it's a great read, and, and I think people who are interested, uh, all those firefighters and, and others who are interested in a better understanding of the state of public pensions in Illinois, uh, should read that report. It, it, it it's a good piece, it's a good paper, and it's free. It's easy. You can just download it, read it at your at your leisure. So uh, it looks like you have taken up the academic journey. Well, thank you. First of all, I'd like to know for the record that I, I did not pay Professor Bruno for saying those nice <laughs> things. He did that uh, in the kindness of his own heart. But yeah, it, it was uh, definitely an, an experience. And in, in kind of speaking of the, of the background and in, in like an academic background, I, I, I think on behalf of the Associated Firefighters, what you do for us is, is really incredible. And 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 I just want to tell you kind of my experience going from local to local and in, in, in bargaining and, and Luke is, is going to have I, I in our conversations, he's echoed the, the kind of the same same kind of concerns, I guess. Um, so and, and I just I'm just interested in, in your experience and in, in what you see out there as well. So, you know, I, I go and I and I bargain contracts and. What I have found is while there are a great many of our members who um, know and remember and understand kind of all of the history behind collective bargaining and in, in, in where we came from, there are a great many that don't. And we've kind of lost our way a little bit. And what I find um, is that when they look at the contract, it is a medium for, which is very important, it is a medium for job protections and uh, wages and benefits and in proper working conditions, etc. cetera. And, and it is this legal medium that provides that. But my God, there are a great many of our members that don't understand the blood, sweat and tears and decades of history and fighting that went into that. Luke, do, do you, do you kind of, that's kind of the sense you've shared with me as well. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. that's the important part of working with Professor Bruno. Also within AFFI, we've created that labor history committee and trying to get that information out to our members because a lot of them have been exposed to union workers and their families, and history goes away if you don't uh, look into it and, and learn from it, and we want to continue to put that out there, and that's where Professor Bruno has been an awesome resource for the FFI, and in, I'll do a little plug here. This is my point of personal privilege. <laughs> we so, sound so professional. In, in, Everybody yeah. <laughs> Season one, episode two. Yes. In the fall, we, we plan to host our first new member conference, and we want to get our new members across the state 
into that and understand labor history, understand what benefits they have and where we're going and start them out with a good foundation. And Professor Bruno is going to be a big part of that program. So I'm looking forward to that. Stay tuned for information on that program. Professor Bruno, like, do you do you see that statewide with our workers or is that mm. just is that just anecdotally my problem? What do you, what do you think? Oh, well, you know, I think what you're, uh, you and uh, me both uh, experience and, and appreciate uh, is it, something that's fairly common across lots of trades. So, uh, so it, on the upside, the you know, Illinois firefighters really have done a good job to prioritize uh, the importance of answering the question, where do you come from? What was the origin of uh, of all of this, uh, and because you've done that, uh, I think people are showing a, a greater receptivity you know, to history. But as a as a general rule, uh, the labor movement really, really struggles uh, to convey the, the importance uh, of the the origin story of organized labor in this country, uh, and 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 in part, you know, that has a lot to do with how uh, how we do labor education in this country and the resources that unions have and all the other battles uh, that they're often fighting. Uh, you know, too often it's just a small sliver of folks uh, like Luke and like you, Jerry, and the leadership uh, that has opportunity to access this kind of education. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seep down deep into the rank and file. And then at some you know, future point, you, you realize, well, geez, you don't really have really good internal organizing you don't have a lot of um, solidarity or buy-in. And, and in part, uh, it's because that education uh, is, is missing. So it, it, it's a reason why we do labor history classes. It's a reason why it's one of the most popular offerings. Uh, and, and, and it's one that bears great, usually bears great return after, you know, after teaching, uh, after teaching the classes. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do see it. I do see it pretty broadly across occupations and trades. But again, to your credit, you're at least prioritizing it. You're putting it on the, the docket and saying you want to expose people to, to history. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to say something. I don't know if this is controversial or not, or maybe this is just my experience, but I've seen where there's maybe deliberate suppression of labor history or there is is a willful indifference to teach it and I in my own experience you know going through you know grade school and high school I mean maybe there was some you know we, they talked about Haymarket for a moment or like the Pullman Palace car company strikes etc but there was never really a unit dedicated to workers and workers rights and progressivism and what happened on, on you know May 4th and Haymarket Square and why and the Knights of Labor and the Industrial Workers of the World and and industrial unionism versus craft unionism, etc. There's just kind of been this, it was like, well, things were really bad in like the early 1900s and then there was labor and then all of a sudden there was Jimmy Hoffa and here we are today. So it's, it's yeah. it, do, you, do you find that there's this kind yeah, of yeah. willful indifference? Yeah. Um, so, you know, this might come as a, a surprise, I don't know, but in Illinois, for example, there is a there's a mandate that, that a certain amount of workers' history of, of um, uh, history about uh, American capitalism, the economy, worker laws, labor unions, uh, a unit of study is is is, is required. Uh, but how that's defined, how much of that 
that you know, really is kind of left up to uh, left up to local schools. And 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 I think what what you're saying is certainly true. Uh, most workers, you know, by the time they're in the workforce, by the time they've been exposed to a fair amount of uh, you know, employer abuse, and, and maybe they've been in a, a union or two, and it maybe it's a good experience, maybe it, it wasn't. Uh, they really have not had uh, the benefit of much education. It isn't primary, you know. It's it's not something that's considered to be a core topic uh, that's taught that people uh, when they're young. So uh, when I'm doing a class for your members or I'm doing it for, uh, you know, the carpenters or the, or the auto workers or the steel workers, I ask them, uh, you know, how many of you are aware of this story? And you and Jerry, you mentioned Haymarket, which is a Chicago story, right? I mean, you can do wonderful things with that story. You can physically bring people to the monument. You can kind of walk and recreate the moment. And that's it. Just an enormously important uh, story uh, in, Ameri- in American history writ large. But look, when I ask workers how much of this they know uh, that they knew before they got into class, very little of it uh, is known. And maybe they kind of sort of heard it. And, and you have to ask yourself, I mean, what is the, what is a more fundamental human activity than work? You know, I mean, you know, we work for our food. We, we work to create society. We, we work uh, to create pieces of art. I mean, your work saves lives for, for heaven's sake. Yeah, this is a really significant life activity, and you're going to spend so many hours of your life working to think that it, it's relegated to sort of backwaters when it comes to study, and that we don't we don't centralize it in the lives of people who are, for the most part, going to grow up, and they are going to work for a living. Uh, but it's almost as if you just got to get it through osmosis. And then when that happens, it's a little late and it's, uh, it's hard to recoup. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you, know, you mean we're, we're not all going to grow up with trust funds then. We have to actually go to work for a living. So, all right, I have to digress for a second because you mentioned Haymarket and I mentioned Haymarket. And I know I'm very biased here. I'm kind of like the super nerd. I once went to Pittsburgh to go and visit a, a scene of a steel strike that happened, but that's just because I'm weird. So I want to um, give me, by the way, I have to ask this, give me the top five, because I, I Chicago, in my mind, in Illinois, is the seminal place for labor uh, history and the labor movement and the strikes and strifes. So give me kind of the top five. So Haymarket's one of them. Pullman is another place to visit. The Mother Jones Memorial in Southern Illinois, uh, which is is fantastic. Haymarket Martyrs, they're they're buried in Forest Park. Kind of give me what else am I missing? Give me some other locations that our members can go Justin, to. Uh, yeah, so you're talking uh, just in um, in Illinois. Well, let me suggest something, at least for those that are in the Chicago Cook County uh, region, uh, and, and I can certainly uh, make this available to the local, but uh, some years ago, we produced a working class uh, map. Uh, uh, it was a, a map, a beautiful map. You can, piece of art, you put it up on the wall. But it, it breaks Chicago into neighborhoods and then identifies sites of historical importance. And some were these big you know, labor battles, some were union halls, some were uh, worker fraternal organizations. And, and, and you can walk these, you know, you can walk these neighborhoods or you can 
or you can uh, drive them. Um, uh, so, you know, you could, you, you could visit parts of Chicago uh, and have an experience of the 1877 uh, railroad strike. You, know, you can look at murals on the, on the wall of Teamster City or a famous mural uh, of the Packing House. Workers and you know the exact address is on this map with a little bit of uh, you know the information uh, uh, that's pertinent to it. But you know other places, uh, Illinois was the site uh, uh, in the 20th century, late 19th century, for some of the worst mining disasters. Which I mean, all, and so going to those sites are important because you get a sense of the blood that was sacrificed uh, on the altar, uh, really of you know, of American capitalism. Uh, and so different, so there, uh, there are locations uh, around the state that connect to other key industries and workers, uh, uh, like uh, the Illinois canals uh, and, 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 and rivers, right? Um, so there isn't, a, there isn't a spot anywhere really in the state that you couldn't travel to uh, to find some key story uh, of labor uh, that you can tell. Uh, and by the way, this map, now that I think about it, uh, it, it actually has a downstate. It has an outside of Chicago, a set of uh, a geographical uh, uh, listings. All right. Uh, so, you know, you've got packing house strikes in Chicago. You've got garment industry uh, strikes in Chicago. And I, I would point out just a few years ago, uh, the you, know, you had a big, yeah, right. You had two of them, and I and I don't know what the news is today, but you might have a third one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, third based one. on the results That's of the vote. Thought. Yeah. So, so you're right. So Chicago is right up there uh, as, as a key place to tell labor story, and the state of Illinois writ large. For I, sure. I think what I and if I'm not mistaken, I think I just heard you say that you were willing to send an, an autographed. Um, copy of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and a copy of that map to anybody who wants it. Is that correct? Are you, you uh, well, and you're paying the postage? We got plenty of we got we got maps. I don't think I, mean, I don't know how many copies of Upton Sinclair's book. I wish I would have written. <laughs> that would be a that would be a great one. Yeah, and of course, right. We we you you reference all the all the uh, packing house. There's not a whole lot of geography left of, of the back of the arch, but there's still the archway. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a story to be told. So now that we've talked about kind of general, which I, I'm sorry, I, digre- I could talk about that stuff for a semester, but um, sure. let's kind of move into, of course, uh, um, our little niche in the wonderful world of craft unionism, firefighting. Um, and, and can you talk for a moment? First of all, how'd you meet Luke slash Timothy? Where, where did that come from, that incredible dynamic duo of you and him? I'm sorry, uh, I, I say it again. I'm sorry, Jerry. And me too. Where Where did Luke Howison become fortunate enough to meet you? Oh, Luke. Where? Um, that's. A, uh, do you guys remember Luke? That, do you remember? That no, when think, did uh, I first meet you, Luke? Obviously, through an arbitration class at along the way, but uh, we kind of hooked. We up were in a bar in Blue Island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, uh, I don't think so, but maybe that's yeah. why I don't remember. <laughs> no, after I got elected, uh, we made sure to meet up. and really, I do recall that. And really with uh, President Devaney to really forge more of a alliance, I guess you say, to sure. get more education out there because yeah, we, you have those resources that are outside of our organization. You want to tap them. And uh, Professor Bruno and I have 
actually put on several classes over the last couple of years. Through the Labor History Committee, correct? Well, that as well as arbitration classes. Mm -hmm. We did a mediation class that we had never done before. We were able to set that up and run that kind of stuff. So just working with him on that kind of level and, and again, the resources that he brings to the table in this past yeah. year, just switching and doing webinars. Uh, we had to do right. that, right? You know, right. And we actually brought in that history back in the spring. Uh, Bob talked about, you know, the pandemic and how that affected labor uh, back in 1917 mm-hmm. and how there's parallels today to back that, mm-hmm. you know. So, Professor Bruno, how's your history? How has your experience with Labor History Committee for with the AFFI been? How what give us give us your thoughts on it? You know, it says Luke noted that the idea is to uh, pull the, the you know bring bring the labor history uh, into uh, whatever the Really, the topic is uh, to show how it how there is some history behind this. For example, um, so instead of just a straightforward, you know, here's a series of things that happened in labor history. How about tying labor, labor's history uh, to uh, the pandemic, and more broadly to what labor fights for uh, in terms of public policy? You know, like what kind of a government best serves working people? And I, you know, I think of this given the inauguration yesterday. Uh, uh, of, of Joe Biden, obviously, you know, the firefighters were huge supporters of, of President Biden. Uh, so, but what is that history? Workers sometimes struggle with knowing, well, what is the right sort of political view to take and, and what kind of policies work best for workers? What kind of government works best? And if you, and, and to Luke's credit, you see, you know, he was open, this is a webinar we recently did, he was open to, well, let's, Take, use the pandemic, let's use some labor history and tie it into this larger story of, of, of what kind of government really builds a strong uh, middle class. Perfect, you know, way to, uh, a perfect way to bring that, uh, way to bring that history uh, forward. So uh, I think that's, and that's in addition to if you just run a Great history class where you cover key events, you know, labor history from one from one day up to another. Uh, you can also do it in a in, in a more kind of strategic way. Uh, and it, and I do like uh, that uh, you know Luke was open to uh, uh, to doing it that way. So you know we tell a little bit of political history, uh, which is important uh, to uh, to current to the very current status uh, of the one way. Firefighters. Well, I think, the more we can do with that, better. I think it's good to hear because you know I want to go back to my my earlier comment where you know guys look at a contract and they don't realize the decades of history staring back at you. And so what we have now, so what does the Associated Firefighters do better than anybody, which is educate and train and legislate, et cetera. But I think you have a bunch of, uh, you can, you do have a, a good amount of bargaining unit members out there that I think without the history of, of why these contracts are the way that they are and, and what the movement entailed to get to this point, they start, I guess for lack of a better term, they start voting uh, on polit- for political office for different reasons. It's almost like they have this mental checklist of like, oh, okay, labor rights done, contract done, you know, just cause discipline done. I can now vote on religious issues or guns, etc. And in in season one, episode one, when we talked to Chuck Sullivan, you know, he was like, 
look, guys, you know, every day somebody wants to take these rights away from you. Somebody is looking to vote this this down and, you know, et cetera. So it's it's nice to hear that that the tie in with what you're doing is to explain to people, you know, look, if you don't understand the history here, you can miss the fact that all of your rights in your collective bargaining agreement could be taken away with a stroke of a pen if you don't yeah. understand the political history. Am I am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah you uh, you certainly are. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm thinking uh, uh, to uh, just classes that I've done uh, on collective bargaining. That, that, that is another uh, uh, popular uh, topic. Uh, and, 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 and I open my class uh, by putting my students through an exercise where I ask them to um, to talk to me about what collective bargaining is, or, or what do you think it is? What sort of knowledge do you have about it, right? What do you know about it? What do you think it is? And and, and you'll get, you know, you'll get some typical stuff like you'd expect. Well, you know, it's a, it's a contract uh, that sets working conditions. And, and all that's true. Uh, but if you really expand it a bit more, uh, you, you come to understand that that contract is is, a, is an embodiment of a relationship and one that's built on some balance of power. Well, all right, well, why is that important? Well, because that balance isn't just given. Uh, it has to be fought for. And it's the product. It, it's also, an, your contract is an historical product. It's an archive, right? And it, it, it's a relationship. It's built up over years. So what are all the variables and factors that, uh, that went went into that, um, you know, into getting uh, that agreement. Uh, so there are aspects and elements of what that contract is that I think, if properly understood uh, up front, even before you got into the kind of stuff, I think that you're probably doing really well, Jerry, in, in sort of teaching the nuts and bolts of the collective bargaining process. Uh, but once people sort of see what this contract really is. Um, their eyes are open, and now they treat it almost like a sacred text, right? And you shouldn't be indifferent to it. Um, I know it looks like just a lot of words on paper, but it has all of this meaning and history and subtext behind it. I like to just come out and say, look, this process is magical. This is a magical process. Somehow all these workers come together collectively, and they get on roughly equal footing with with the owner or with the municipality in your case, right? And they get on equal footing and they establish rights that they would never have a single individual. How in the world does that happen? And despite the differences of the parties, they come out with a with a set of rules for how they're going to how they're going to produce, how they're going to work. Uh, uh, and so it, it, it and, and it is the it is without question. The, the most effective dispute resolution problem solving mechanism uh, that, uh, that we have found uh, you know, broadly uh, uh, across all occupations uh, in this country. And therefore, you know, people really need to have a great appreciation for it. And, and it's great that you, know, you guys are doing a lot of uh, training around understanding uh, the collective bargaining uh, agreement. Jesus, um, Professor, yeah. that was beautiful. I almost, I, I want to transcribe that and get it tattooed. I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, can we take a, I need a moment so I can wipe a tear away from my eye. It was, just, it was like stirring. I wanted to like punch the wall and yell, yay union, when you were done with that, you know? Okay. Uh, um, so, so, so kind of, I want to just given your, obviously your expertise and your, your, your understanding of history for the labor movement, let's talk, you had mentioned something a couple moments ago, which was the inauguration of a new president yesterday. Uh, yeah. which thankfully went off without a hitch. And we had the uh, election results from the uh, grand old state of Georgia, uh, which mm-hmm. kind of changed the balance of power in, in, in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. What are you anticipating or seeing, um, if you're comfortable talking about it and reading the tea sure. leaves? It's the mystical, magical world of Washington, so who knows by reading the tea leaves. But what, are you, what do you think the next four years brings um, for labor in the United States? Well, let me ask you this. First, labor generally in the United States, what do you think the next four years brings? And then we can kind of maybe tie it into the fire service as well after that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, despite the the the, the uh, terrible recession that uh, we're still living through, and of course, uh, this, uh, uh, this this horrible uh, public health crisis, which has um, just negatively impacted so many people and, and taken so many lives uh, unnecessarily, uh, I am really optimistic about what the Biden administration, along with now uh, Democratic control in the Senate. And, and I say that because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an academic who, who has studied political history and it's by far working people, union and non-union, have prospered much better uh, under labor-friendly Democratic governments than they have Republican governments. Uh, in Washington. Now, that doesn't mean, you, you, you know, on a state or local level that you can't find great bipartisanship. And Illinois certainly once had a, a, a record of doing that, and, and maybe that's still, that's still the case. But it, it matters uh, which party uh, is in control of government uh, in Washington. And, you know, during the, during the primaries, this grew out of some classes that, that I taught, we looked at the prospective platforms of the Democratic candidates compared it to uh, President Trump's, uh, you could easily dismiss President Trump's. It's clearly an anti-worker, anti-union platform. And, but on the Democratic side, there was, um, was a lot of, of enthusiasm, just tremendous excitement for the commitment to labor in ways that I have not seen in my lifetime. Any one of these candidates uh, actually had put forward a, a, just a very robust pro-labor, pro-worker, pro-union uh, set of plat- set of policy positions. And Biden certainly took, you know, didn't take a backseat to any. He's made clear that he intends to be the strongest uh, president organized labor, the most pro-union president we've ever had. Um, and I, I honestly think he means that and is going to set out to do that. So, you know, obviously he's got to get this pandemic under control. Schools have to be able to be open. You've got to get people uh, back into workplaces safely. But um, just, I believe today he, saw, he has signed, or maybe he has signed an executive order uh, that's going to, uh, I think, request that OSHA issue uh, temporary interim standards um, uh, around COVID and airborne diseases, something yes, labor movement actually yeah, he did. So, you know, right away, bang, out of the box. Uh, Marty Walsh uh, is designee for Department of Labor. 
uh, you know, one of the labor's own, uh, I think has made some really powerful uh, comments around the needs of essential uh, of essential workers. I think the PRO Act uh, is something that Biden most certainly uh, has to uh, 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 make a strong case for passing that would uh, rebalance power in the workplace and strengthen worker organizing. Uh, I think you're going to see the kind of appointments to the NLRB that, again, are going to reset the board back to its original place. Uh, and I believe that, you know, I, I believe the administration will seriously invest in a, in a strong infrastructure bill that are going to, that's going to have labor standards uh, uh, up front. And we would expect to see a minimum wage law passed and a strengthening of uh, of of, of public sector bargaining across the country. So I think maybe a legitimate effort finally uh, to eliminate the scourge uh, of the right to work exemption uh, in, in, in federal law. Uh, so, you know, that, that's more holistic and generally speaking. Uh, but I'm really optimistic. And I know it's just 50 votes and you've got to deal with, uh, you know, closure. Uh, uh, and, but I'm optimistic that... that we finally have a, a president that is really going to put labor uh, first and foremost, uh, more so than any president that we've had. Yeah, uh, I want to. I, I, I know Luke's, Luke's got a quick question for, but I, but I just want to take an opportunity. What I'm hoping for is exactly what you're saying, and, and I want them to publicly bring the fight because I can remember, and you tell me if my history is wrong, pun intended. Uh, I can remember back in 2010 when the Democratic Party controlled all three houses until the midterm elections. And I remember being so excited, like, okay, card check legislation and worker mm -hmm. protections, mm -hmm. and they're going to expand mm -hmm. bargaining. And, it, and, and, it, and, and there was nothing. And, and, and the one thing I can grudgingly say about the Republican Party in Washington, D.C., is man, they're like a locked on missile. Like, this is what we're going to do. We don't care. We're doing it. We're putting it through. Right. And, and right. I just, I want to see that this time. I want them to say, okay, we're not messing around anymore. We are getting these bills passed, done. This is going to happen. It's for the good of the country. I don't know if I have that right or wrong or my history is correct or, or incorrect, uh, but it's what I would like to see. Well, you were—I think maybe Luke wanted to jump in there, but I'll just say briefly—you you certainly were right about what happened in the Obama administration with the Employee Free Choice Act, uh, and and of course, uh, and so there is some parallel here, some concern. Uh, you know, Obama came into office and he was facing a a, a you know a, an economic crisis. Right, the markets had had collapsed. We were looking at—we were part of this great recession. The auto industry was about to go uh, belly up. Um, there was a huge, you know, outcry uh, to try to pass some kind of, exp you know, extended uh, health care, uh, and the, and those policies took uh, priority. Uh, and so we, and then of course, if you recall, Senator Kennedy and Senator Byrd uh, passed away, and then Obama lost his majority. So you know, once again, and this isn't the first time. This happened under Lyndon Johnson, uh, also. Uh, it happened during the Carter administration. Uh, labor's priority uh, somehow slips, or they slip as a priority, um, and, it, and 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 the issue is I don't think it's rightly seen as good for the country, and so you can worry about that a little bit here because Biden's also uh, he's inherited, um, uh, you know, this pandemic and this 
in this recession. However, he does, he seems to understand, though, that labor is not just an interest group. They're, they're not just a, 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 sec, a separate group that does some good, but that they're embedded and ingrained in the health and welfare uh, of the country. So there's no way for the country to be healthy uh, if labor isn't healthy. So, uh, no, I'm hoping that doesn't happen again, Jerry. It'd be a great disappointment if it does. Very much so. Lou, do you have a quick, you have a quick question? Yeah. Hey, Bob, just to kind of elaborate, because yes. our, our, hey, Bob. our <laughs> listeners are, that's my, that's my attempt at a Chicago accent. Uh, that was good, actually. So our, uh, our listeners are pretty varied. You know, we got, you know, our union board members and, you know, just regular firefighters who are listening to this podcast, maybe working out and stuff. Can you elaborate a mm-hmm. little more on the PRO Act, like what it means to labor in general and what it's going to mean and maybe to sure. our members, uh, it's strengthening yeah. the labor movement? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it's really uh, almost like an omnibus bill in that it really addresses some of um, some of labor's greatest wants uh, and needs. And uh, you know, in summary, uh, it would it would strengthen the ability of workers to organize into unions. Uh, you know, if you keep union de- if union density is small, if it's risky to organize, if, if the hoops you have to jump through are too high. Uh, if there's too much power in the hands of the employer, well, then you have too fewer workers who are unionized. And if there are too fewer workers unionized, then it does impact uh, the, the overall conditions within an industry, uh, and, and it directly ties into political outcomes. So if labor has fewer members, uh, they have less of a political voice, and that voice could be on behalf of conservative Republican candidates, or it could be on behalf of Bernie Sanders you know, uh, progressive Democrats, labor is going to look for candidates uh, who uh, promote their issues. So the PRO Act would, would, would make it possible uh, for workers who generally want to join unions to do so uh, at much, uh, much greater, uh, at much greater uh, risk. Uh, the law would also, uh, you know, it would also allow some uh, uh, workers who haven't been who who haven't been designated, you know, haven't who aren't committed under the law uh, to be able to organize. We got a huge population of workers who we treat as independent contractors or so-called gig workers. They're not treated as employees, and and this is a you know this is a scary development in our society. You know, imagine every one of your firefighters being treated as an independent contractor who, who independently contracts uh, with their fire department. But they're not employees. There's no workers' comp. You know they got to pay that. There's no, uh, uh, you know, there's no unemployment benefits. There's no guaranteed wage, and and they're not going to organize into into a union and then uh, covered by a collective bargaining agreement. So there's big swaths of the population that are just um, are just exposed, right? And, and as a result, uh, a more, uh, more 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 vulnerable. Uh, so you know the idea behind the act. Is, is quite frankly uh, to uh, rebalance uh, power in the workplace, to modernize and update uh, current uh, current labor law, uh, uh, so that uh, so that in fact uh, workers who genuinely want to be represented under a collective bargaining agreement uh, have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, have the opportunity, and 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 your your members should understand that. Um, the best research we have says that under current conditions, uh, and this is going to startle, I think will startle folks, only about a quarter, only about 25% of, uh, 
of workers who vote to join a union, right? So they say, we, despite the hell that they have to go through, they still say they want a union, they, uh, they vote for a union. Only 25% of those workers ever, ever, ever work under a single collective bargaining agreement uh, because the way the rules are written, an employer could delay, uh, obfuscate, uh, and ultimately find ways to decertify those collective bargaining units. So only a quarter of the workers who actually vote to join a union ever work under a collective bargaining agreement. But you could have a law like they do in Canada, particularly in the public sector, that says that you have, you know, and across the country, of course, uh, that you have first contract uh, mandatory uh, arbitration. You know, arbitration contract, something more uh, prominent in the public sector, but we can change the rules. And as a result of that, uh, we could extend bargaining rights to more workers, which after all, in a democracy, uh, should be uh, should be highly thrived. Well, and I want to, we're kind of coming near the end, but I wanted to talk about one, one particular issue because you, you, you keep talking about workers. And I think that some of our members might be sitting here going, well, I'm a very good fireman. I pay my union dues, et cetera. But we can, again, get into a semester's worth of debate versus, you know, of the IWW one big union and the craft unions and, and you know, et cetera. But it, it really is an injury. In, in my humble opinion, it really is an injury to one is an injury to all. Right. So firefighters out there, Associated Firefighters of Illinois, firemen out there, if I may be so bold, have to remember that. What happens to the Teamster truck driver and what happens to the federal postal employee and what happens to CTU and what uh-huh. happens to the United Auto Workers um, and their ability to organize? And, and I, I know, I think, uh, I think in Alabama, it was the... Um, Volkswagen plant, which talking about, you know, muddying up the waters, what happened uh, there, but et cetera. But we are all in this together. And what happens to one and their ability to organize and fight for themselves affects us. Because if no one is left as being organized and it's just the firefighters left, what yeah. a bit, when are they coming for us? So that, yeah. that's kind of my thoughts on the matter. Yeah, you know, yeah, and that those are good thoughts that need to be uh, uh, communicated over and over again. Uh, I'd, I'd go uh, even further uh, and say to your firefighter brothers and sisters that they, in fact, are the are um, uh, they may feel very comfortable in their present condition, but uh, they really are the target uh, of a uh, a very well resourced and long-standing and defined uh, assault on labor protections because uh, public sector unionization right now uh, dwarfs private sector unionization. We are in the same. We are close. We're, we're getting. Actually, we are. I'm sorry. We are under 10 percent. We are in single digits in private sector unionization, which means you got to go back to the 1920s to find numbers that low. In the public sector, they are much better. They're closer to you know, 30% or more. Uh, but that number has begun to whittle down. And ever since 2010, when Republicans took control of Congress and lots of state houses, uh, there's been a, there has been a, a, a well-targeted assault on the public sector to reduce bargaining rights for workers. Now, firefighters haven't been in the crosshairs 
uh, of, of that, not the way teachers, for example, have been, or other state or county employees. But the, the point is, um, the, what's holding the labor movement up, what's keeping them afloat, really are public sector workers, right? Yeah. Strong unionization in the public sector. Uh, and but, but if you can weaken that, and that's why the Janus, I know we're running out of time, but that's why that Janus Supreme Court decision in 2018 was so critical because it created right to work uh, uh, in the public sector uh, from coast to coast, border, uh, border to border. And the idea is that if you can weaken public sector unionization, if you can begin to strangle it and reduce it, then what, what is, you know, what's left of organized labor? Where is it going to get its organizing strength? Where is it, where is it going to get its political right. mobilization from? So your firefighters are the target. They're the ones that they, they're standing and they're standing strong, but they're the target of, of those conservative forces, uh, who, who simply have never accepted, uh, organized labor as legitimate, uh, uh, social, uh, entity. Well, I, sorry, I just need a second because you mentioned the Janus decision, so I just vomited in my mouth a little bit. I'm sorry. <laughs> when, when in the history of poverty in this country, when we're all living under a, the Central Avenue Bridge, that'll be Citizens United and and Janus. Uh, uh, Janus, st- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, two final questions that our listeners are going to be are going to want to know. If you had to recommend one favorite one labor history book one what union bookshop would you recommend we go into and buy what is the name which book would you recommend for favorite labor history book Mm, one labor history book okay it could be historical fiction or you know an actual like you know like death at the hammer you know what i mean something like what one book would you recommend you know, uh, there is a, a popular book that we use in lots of our uh, training, uh, and we like it because it, it it's quite accessible. It's not uh, uh, you know it's not a heavily academic book. Some people like history, uh, some people like fiction, but this book, um, the folks who brought you the weekend. Oh and, yeah. And, Right, and the author is escaping me, but it's got nice graphics, uh, images. Um, it lays out a nice history. It's a good primer. You know, it's the kind of things you're going to teach a class. You might say, okay, maybe everybody gets a copy of the book. Um, I think that one would certainly be that one would be really valuable uh, to have. Uh, now, there's lots of other, you know, particular uh, texts that focus on one historical event uh, as opposed to uh, uh, another, uh, but that's a good one. And, 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 and there is a, it, it, there is also a two volume uh, um, set, uh, but it's not a, again, it's not a heavily, it's not a, it's not a heavy academic, but um, that is kind of history, labor history, volume one, who built America, volume one, Volume Two: Who Built America, and it's told from the bottom up, told from the worker story up. Begin with slavery, and begin to understand slavery as a system of labor. Oh, yeah, so that's fantastic. So we have those books, uh, um, which are that is excellent. And my last quick, because I know who, what my answer is uh, immediately. But if you could go back in time and meet one favorite labor historical figure for the labor movement, 
who would it be and why? Oh, wow. Okay. So lots of people. Um, and so, he, uh, so, but you've only asked me. Just one, your main guy. Who, who are you going on a labor desert island with? Well, so it's not going to be a guy. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> so so you and Mother Jones then, I guess, are going to be right, on the no, desert that's island. Right. Yeah, that's right. It's Mother Jones. <laughs> I, yes. I, yeah, come on. Who could be better? Right? I mean, this woman is incredible, well into her 80s, and she's inspiring workers. And, you know, she could she can curse like a sailor, and she scared the hell out of employers, and she inspired working people. Um, I find this woman uh, to be uh, just an incredible inspiration. So if you're only giving me one, then um, I'd love to be able to sit down and hang out and march with Mother Jones. And that is a, I don't know if you can get a better answer than that. Deb's for me. I just more of an emotional. He's amazing, but Mother Jones was is definitely in the team photo. So I'm going to leave you with this, and we thank you for your okay. time. And 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 uh, and and I'll turn it back over to Luke. But the last thing I wanted to say is, uh, who controls the past controls the future, and who controls the present controls the past. So I wanted to thank you so much, despite my Orwellian warnings. Uh, uh, yeah, thank you so one. much for your time, and Luke. You can, uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, just one little quick thing. Uh, Professor Bruno is going to work on us with a webinar here coming up in February. Uh, on the 10th and the 17th, we're going to produce our Building Effective Unions webinar. Bob, you want to say anything mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, no, thanks for the opportunity. First of all, thanks for the opportunity to continue to work uh, with the union. Um, yeah, there, there was a, a colleague of mine uh, put together uh, a compendium that I contributed to uh, that look at different elements and aspects uh, of the uh, of what made unions effective, where and when they were, and, and he built this off of a, a number of, of case studies and surveys. So, sort of thinking of the union, you know, as an organization, what makes the organization organization strong? Everything from educating members, communicating with them. Uh, uh, doing political mobilization, handling grievances, what are the basic building blocks? And, and the idea is that these measures have been tested and are very robust and they align with strong unions. So we're going to kind of work through, uh, we'll put together a nice uh, uh, set of materials and we'll work through what the elements are and, and hopefully locals can go back and say, say well, you know, what are we doing well? What aren't we doing well? Uh, so it should be a uh, it, it should be a very um, user-friendly uh, and impactful training, and, and I'm really honored to be able to do it. Again, Professor Bruno, we appreciate your time. Looking forward to getting that webinar out there for our members listening. They'll be able to uh, sign up here soon. We'll put out the email on that and get everybody engaged on that program. But, again, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Professor, it was, it was really an honor, and, and we really appreciate it, and, and thank you for everything you do. Also, an honor for me, and I can say the same about uh, both of you. So thanks a lot. This has been uh, very enjoyable. Very good. Take care. Be safe. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Luke. See you, Bob. Bye-bye.